Hey, good morning. Good to see all of you, and it's good to meet a few new people this morning. My name is Jack, Bethany Northeast lead pastor. Uh, like Andrew said, we are in a new series started last week called Encounters with Christ, and um, in the Gospel of Luke specifically. So we're kind of looking at some stories in Luke where Jesus kind of encounters a person or a group. And our hope, like I said la- uh, last week, if you weren't here, um, is kind of twofold. One that we would see that each of these encounters that Jesus has with a person in the Gospels or this Gospel is unique, and so that your encounter, whether that, like I said, was in fifth grade or first grade or fifteen or twenty years old, and whether it was very dramatic or very kind of what you would call normal, um, is significant. Every encounter with Christ, because it's an encounter with Christ, is important, and that's the point. And the other uh, thing I want to just press this with is that uh, it's the transformation of encountering Christ that's really the point. So every person who meets Jesus in the Gospels has their life changed in some way, usually physically, oftentimes spiritually, emotionally. And so as you're seeking to encounter Christ in your own life, it's not (laughs) presumptuous. It's not like audacious to say, God, change me. That's what Jesus is about, is about transformation. So that's our hope over the summer is that we each experience a transformation in our life. So To that end, let's take a moment to just pause and pray, and then we'll open God's Word together. Let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity we have now to to pause in our week to uh, open this Word that you've given to us through uh, Luke and um, this story about how you encountered Peter. Um, Would this encounter speak to us personally? Um, Would it speak to us as a a community collectively? Um, Would you equip us through that that time of just meditation on your word, uh, to be a people of just great hope in the places you've called us to live and work, um, in our families, um, in our in our neighborhoods, in this city. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so by way of introduction, uh, Ralph Nichols, he's this legendary, uh, well, he's passed away now, but professor of rhetoric at University of Minnesota. Did you ever know Ralph Nichols, Alicia? No. Uh, I thought maybe, I don't know if rhetoric, and probably not, no. Totally different field. But anyway, he had this haunting feeling once upon a time. His students were listening to him. Go figure. And so um, he did what any good researcher, professor, or scholar would do. He conducted a study. <laughs> and he studied his a student's listening skills. And it was this simple test with the help of some teachers in Minnesota, K through 12. Uh, he had these teachers... Uh, that were, you know, teaching classroom in classrooms, do kind of a mid-class evaluation. Basically stop what they were teaching, their lecture, their lesson, whatever it was, and ask their students, K through 12, to describe to them what they were saying. Now, you might imagine these wiggly first and second graders having a very hard time doing this, and that high schoolers would excel at this. Is actually quite the opposite. So surprisingly, 90% of first and second graders gave the right answer. But as they got older, these results plummeted. By junior high, only 44% of students could correctly answer the question, well, what am I talking about? And here's the crazy part. <laughs> By high school, I don't know if there's any high school teachers here. Any? Maybe a couple of well, them. One in four <laughs> could successfully recount what their teachers were saying. Which, uh, and then the, it's just basically the, the older people get, 
the more your listening comprehension sinks, which is, if you're tracking with me, incredibly bad news for a guy in my profession. So, so making matters worse, studies show that people wildly overestimate how good they are at listening. So plenty of studies examine this phenomenon. So while listening is the core of most of our communication, the average adult, so we're in our room now, listens nearly twice as much as you speak. That's average, okay? Um, most people, though, are really bad at listening, though you listen twice as much as you speak. In one study, test takers were asked to sit through a 10-minute oral presentation, just picture yourself here today, um, and then later describe its content. Picture maybe sitting down for lunch and, and having someone across the table ask you, what was he talking about today? Half of the adults in this study were not able to do this simple exercise within 10 minutes of the talk. 48% <laughs> hours, eight hours later could not describe. And then 75% of listeners could not recall the subject matter they were listening to within a week. So a week from today, 75% of you will have no idea what I'm talking about. Again, bad news for me. Now, the risks of this should be obvious. You might start out with the intention of focusing on your boss or that useless sales presentation or your spouse's frustrating work story or my sermon, but soon you're going to hear a squirrel in the trees outside, right? Like Doug the dog from the movie Up, my favorite movie. So you notice the woman across the room, she's colored her hair, and you think it's really nice. You see a stain in the carpet here, and you wonder, man, how long has that been there? Um, you're wondering right now what you're going to have for lunch. You're tempted by the false god of multitasking, and suddenly you're lost. You have no idea what's being said, why this is even important, and where this is going. Where is this going? You wondering? Uh, did you notice the detail at the beginning of Luke's story here in, in chapter 5, verse 1? One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him as they always were, listening to the word of God. Faith comes through listening. Always. Faith comes through listening. It's only as we actually listen to God, pay attention to God, that we'll have our lives changed by God. Faith comes through listening. And thus today, uh, because of that, because faith comes by way of listening to God speak, I want to invite us to do that. Listen to God in flesh, Jesus, speak to us. And by doing so, come to this deeper understanding through Luke 5 of who God is, what he's doing, and how, like I said earlier, how God's seeking to transform each of our lives and our community and our city. And specifically, we're going to observe three things Jesus says, not explicitly. In one case, he says this explicitly. Three things he says through his teaching by, beside Lake Gennesaret. And these are listed in your bulletin. Um, I've outlined them for you. He says three things. I choose you, do it my way, and do not be afraid. Okay? I choose you, do it my way, do not be afraid. So you can have that open, and we're just going to walk through the passage this morning. So first, I choose you. And there's a subtle note, and this is in verses kind of 2 and 3 of Luke 5. There's a subtle note of discouragement in this story, if you kind of, and resignation of, uh, amongst these would-be disciples. And you see right there in verse 2, where we're told that Jesus is standing beside Lake Gennesaret, and this group of fishermen, there's a crowd, and then there's this group of fishermen who are there, maybe outside the crowd, quote-unquote, washing their nets. And what we know from the context of the story, verse 8, is, is, is that they had had a really bad night fishing, bad day at work. They, as Peter says in verse 8, they toiled all night and caught nothing. Toil is a, a, word, a word for work that's not going so well, if you've ever toiled. And so though they're listening to Jesus teach from the shore, their brains, in these, like these studies I described to you, they're not focused. They're, li- they're listening, they're focused on something else. 
What happened last night? What are we going to do now? Which are like questions for like, what are we going to eat? Um, what does this mean? This terrible disaster is not in the water. What is, does it mean that we're done? We're finished. Our business is failing now and we're failures. The community is going to laugh at us. We can't even catch a fish, let alone support families and be leaders in our community. Uh, so can you see it? The subtle, not explicit, but subtle note of discouragement in these men as they're standing beside the water in earshot of Jesus teaching, whatever he's teaching. Okay? We don't even know what he was teaching. Uh, well, it's not that way with Jesus. It's quite the opposite, actually. You, if you notice this, if you read the story, it says that they had gotten out of their boats. So their boats are sitting there beside the water. What does Jesus do? He gets into one of them. He just gets in like a boat on the water and stands in it. Interesting, huh? They're, move, they're moving to the background of the story. He's in the very center. The people are crowding around him. He's moving into the foreground. They're leaning away, you could say. He's leaning in. They're silent. He's speaking. They're passive. He's actively determined. He's shaping the outcome of this whole story. Jesus is not passive. Which, by the way, I'm just going to say, this is what grace, that word we use all the time in the church, is all about. Being actively engaged in the outcome of the story. I read this commentary in this passage by Brennan Manning once upon a time. And he said this, that Jesus, in this moment, perceived that the only way Peter would experience life as a gracious gift... The only way for Peter and his companions to prize themselves as grace, as treasure, was to first treat them as treasure and be gracious toward them. Isn't that cool? Barring, and this is this theological term called provenient grace, barring provenient grace, this is God's activity despite my passivity, I will simply not accept my life and my being as God's gracious gift, Brennan Manning says. Unless someone first values me, I won't value God. Isn't that amazing? Jesus sees this. He's valuing them. That's what's being taught, first and foremost. I choose you by Jesus. Christ's presence preceding our decision for Christ. Okay? Uh, Or as as, uh, Brennan Manning says somewhere else, or as Jesus says somewhere else, you didn't choose me. I think it's John 15, 16. What? I chose you. You, It was not your choice. Jesus chooses Peter. Peter doesn't choose Jesus. He doesn't invite Jesus out for a boat ride. You know, Jesus shows up at his place of work. Can you imagine that? Jesus showing at your, your workplace, sitting down at your computer, saying, hey, let's hang out. Let's have coffee. I, I choose you. I'm in your space. Um, not vice versa. Like coming to church, having your quiet time. It doesn't work that way. Jesus never is someone you take up, uh, that you invite in, that you pray to receive. Ultimately, he's, he's the one who takes you up. He's the one who invites himself into your life. He's the one who's present despite your absence, whenever you're absent. Christianity is not something that starts with you. It starts upon you. Uh, put in terms of Luke 5, pardon the pun, you don't catch Christ. You're the result of Christ's work. You just catch. He catches you. Okay. Um, so do you sense that? Like, do you sense that with your life? Or are you sometimes like me, like, what are you talking about, Jack? I prayed to receive Christ when I was 25. Um, I read my Bible every day. I'm actively involved in my own faith. I woke up this morning. I made a decision to come to church. I, that was me. <laughs> and I've done this for years. Like, what do you mean that God is taking hold of me? I don't have any decision in this. Uh, and I would ask you this question. Did you? Did you decide this morning when you woke up to come to church? Did you pray to receive Christ? Was it you? Uh, Maybe it was you. Maybe you did. Maybe you are. But I'll just say, if you did and you are, that's not Christianity. That's not authentic Christianity. 
Real Christianity is Christ choosing you, not you choosing him. It's our maker making us again, remaking us. It's the spirit of God moving across the face of the deep saying, let there be light. He's causing all things in creation, including you, to happen. It's God, it's God taking the initiative, as John 1 says, and moving into the neighborhood, despite the neighborhood not really wanting him there. Um, it's, it's Jesus choosing us despite our ability to, or inability, in this case, in Luke 5, to, to choose him. They didn't know him. They didn't want him there, really. They wanted somebody who could help them in their business, really. Now, why is this significant, that God chooses you? I mean, you might be on the same page, like, yeah, I get that. That's good theology. Um, there's a couple applications for our lives and the difference this makes for our lives. And I'm going to tease them both out before moving on to the second thing that Jesus says here. So number one, some of us are going to need to hear God's choice of us in order to displace kind of our persistent self-doubt. I was talking to a few people about the Enneagram on, in the foyer here. I'm an Enneagram one. And if you don't know what that means, it just means I'm like my own worst enemy, Okay. And so I'm a perfectionist. It's never good enough. And yet I also hate myself at levels. And so that's weird, I know. But I seriously doubt in terms of God's love that I'm really worthy of God's love. I don't know if this describes any of you. Like you doubt, you have this inner critic, you doubt because you know how flawed you actually are. You know where you've been. You know how you talk to your kids, your spouse, your coworkers. You know what you look at when nobody's looking. You know what you've done and what you failed to do. And thus, you have this incredible weight of discouragement on your shoulders, just like Peter, James, and John. They were super discouraged. This relentless voice of your inner critic whispering to you constantly, you're flawed, you're a failure, you're never going to be good enough. So hearing that God chooses you, chooses me, and seeks you and seeks you, it silences the inner critic. It, it defeats the inner critic. It, as Brennan Manning says somewhere else, uh, God delivers us from self-hatred through Christ's preemptive love. That's his goal, is to deliver you from that just self-hatred. He, there, he, Jesus is a stranger to self-hatred. He, he's about saying, I love you into the kingdom of God through grace. So that's the first application. You just need to hear that God chooses you because he wants to silence that voice. Here's the second application, and it's kind of the opposite. And here's what I mean by that. Um, Eugene Peterson, I've read this before, but I thought, it, I thought of it again this week. He writes something in this book called Eat This Book, uh, which I thought was really interesting. It's, he calls it the replacement trinity. And he, I'll just read this to you. He says, we live in an age in which we've all been trained from cradle to choose for ourselves what's best for us. And we have a few years of apprenticeship at this before we're sent out into the world uh, but the training begins early. I've got to hold on, flip the page. He says this: uh, We start at childhood choosing between a half dozen cereals for breakfast—Cheerios, cornflakes, whatever. Our tastes, our inclinations, our appetites are consulted endlessly. We're soon deciding what clothes we're going to wear, what style we're going to wear our hair, what hair, how we're going to get our hair cut, and the options they proliferate. What channels we're going to view now with Netflix? Like it's just endless, right? Uh, what courses we're going to take in college, what college we'll attend, what courses we'll sign up for, uh, what model and make of car we'll buy, what church we'll join. And if the culture does a good job on us, and it turns out it's pretty effective, we enter adulthood with a working assumption, listen to this, that whatever we need and want and feel forms the divine control center of our lives. The new holy trinity of the 21st century, Eugene Peterson says, uh, the, so- the sovereign self is the, is the trinity of my holy needs, my holy wants, and my holy feelings. 
And then he goes on and says, my needs are non-negotiable. The so-called, my so-called rights defined individually are fundamental to my identity. My need for fulfillment, for expression, for affirmation, for sexual satisfaction, for respect. Uh, the need to get my own way. My wants are evidence of my expanding sense of kingdom. I train myself to think big because I am big. I'm important. I'm significant. I'm larger than life. My feelings are the truth of who I am. Anything or person who can provide me with ecstasy or excitement or joy with stimulus or spiritual connection validates my sovereignty. Man, if that doesn't hit you on the nose, <laughs> I don't know what will. And so we need, to hear, we need to hear that because God's choice of us, despite our choice of God, that displaces us, if that's you, from the center of God's story. We often put ourselves in the center. It puts us in a right relationship with God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, not my holy needs, my holy wants, my holy feelings. No longer is merely a strange teacher on the shore of some lake 2,000 years ago, but as Lord. Not of their lives only, but of our lives. Not of just the universe, but of our city and our, our community, our families. Christianity doesn't start with you, friends. It doesn't start with me. It starts with God. It's not really even about you. Though you're not insignificant, as I already said. You're not insignificant to Jesus. Uh, it's a story about Jesus, his love, his death, his resurrection. So that's the first thing you need to hold in tension with this idea that I choose you is, is that it's about Christ. I choose you so that you're not making all the choices. I release you from that burden, okay? Which connects to the second thing. So that's the first thing. I choose you. Okay, here's number two. Do it my way. And this is in verses three and verse four. So here's the scene again. Let me just set it because I've been talking now. Uh, he's standing on the edge of the water, Jesus, teaching this crowd. And they're crowding and they're crowding and they're crowding. He doesn't have a stage like I do. And they didn't have any crowd control, okay? So he sees at the water edge these two boats. And like I said, he gets into one. And he sees a group of guys washing their nets. Okay, that's the scene. Which, by the way, the washing net thing is an intensely involved process. How many have been down to kind of the Ballard Fisherman's Terminal and watched these guys cleaning their fishing nets? Some of you. Um, they're, they're there all day, mending the broken threads, picking out debris, um, just letting them dry. So it's an all-day deal. Okay, they fish all night, do the nets all day. And so Jesus is there teaching, and, and, and there's these guys working, working, okay? Not just kind of finishing up, but working. And in the midst of all that, Jesus sees their boats, and so he gets into one of the boats, verse 3, the one belonging to Peter, who's late, earlier called Simon. So in the story, he's called Simon. And then Jesus asks Peter, hey, let's put out a little bit from shore, you know? And this is a really important moment in this story, because Jesus didn't ask if he could borrow Peter's boat. He didn't say, hey, can I borrow your boat real quick? I, I want to go out. He said, put out, Peter, a little bit from shore. Um, in other words, can I inconvenience you for a moment or two? I mean, like I see you're busy. It looks like you've had a bad night. Um, but can I bother you? <laughs> I gotta, it's going to work better here if I'm on the water. So if you can just take me out for a few minutes. And like I said, that's significant because... I think it means that Peter wants, or Jesus wants Peter's undivided attention. Remember this listening thing I talked about. Remember, faith comes through listening. That following Jesus begins by hearing Jesus. So Jesus is not content with giving a sermon, whatever he's talking about, to this crowd while Peter is sort of half listening, thinking about something else. He wants Peter's full undivided attention because he has something he wants to show Peter, do with Peter. And this is where the story gets really interesting. Verse 4, when he had finished speaking, whatever he's saying... He turns to Peter and says, hey, put out into the deep water. 
So, and then let your nets down for a catch. Now, if you didn't miss it, the nets are drying, right? And Jesus wants them to put them in the boat, go out into the deep. Let's go fishing. <laughs> uh, and then I have something I, you know, it's like, let's not miss the significance of this. He's asking Peter to do something he'd already done and finished doing. <laughs> and something he'd done a thousand times before in a way he'd never done it before, okay? So let me describe what I mean by that. You see, this isn't really a lake, Lake Gennesaret. If you looked at topographic maps and things, this is more like, it's a large body of water. It's more like a sea, large body of water. And so when the water is cool, that's when you fish. Because in deep water, where do fish go when it's warm? Down. They're going to go down to the cold water. And if you're a fisherman, you kind of know this. And so if you're fishing with a net, what you're doing is, this is not deep sea fishing, you're not going down, down, down. You're just dragging along with these boats, dragging it along the shore of the water or the, the surface of the water. That's how you'd catch fish, okay? So the fish went deeper. When, you came to sh- when the fish go deeper in the morning, you go to shore, you wash your nets, you go home. So here's what I'm trying to say. They'd been fishing all night. That's when they did their job. They've been fishing when you're supposed to fish. <laughs> They're not idiots. And they caught nothing, zero. And so they're drying their nets, cleaning their nets. They're discouraged. They're going home empty-handed, like nothing. And Jesus said, let's go fishing, Peter, when you're not supposed to go fishing. How's that going to work out? (laughs) Which is another way to say, I want you to do something you've done a thousand times, Peter. You're a fisherman. I'm not. I just kind of want you to do it different. I want you to try something my way. Let's do it my way. And we don't know what Peter's thinking. Luke doesn't tell us. He could have been thinking, wow, clearly a carpenter. I mean, this guy, he's a rabbi. Like, that's a great sermon. You've gathered a crowd. You have a way with words, man. But you know nothing about fishing. Like, have you even read? Like, you don't do this. You're out of your element, Jesus. I mean, he could have been thinking all those things. And by the way, he might have been thinking, I don't know if you've noticed, but you have gathered this crowd. And when this crowd sees me going fishing in broad daylight, they're going to think I'm a complete idiot. I'm already, I've already caught nothing. They're going to think, you're a fool. We already kind of think that. And they're going to think, we're crazy. That's why the next part is so cool. So verse 5, Peter says, Master, which is like a term of respect. Um, Jesus is a rabbi. If you go back to chapter 4, he's just healed Peter's mother. So he, he's being deferential, if not slightly cynical. I'm putting the cynicism in my own terms. I think I just identify with Peter as a cynical person. But he's being deferential toward Jesus. Master, rabbi. We've worked hard all night, haven't caught a thing, but because you say so, I'm going to let down the nets. Not because I think it's a good idea, not because I, don't th- I think it's going to work, not because I think it's going to help my reputation, <laughs> not because I even think it's remotely valuable use of my time right now, not because this will be a story that ever gets told again by anybody, anywhere, but because you say so, but because you say so. Which is another way of saying, because I've listened Listening comes, or faith comes through listening, and I've loaned you my boat, and then I've listened some more. I have just enough, and you've healed my mom, I have just enough respect for you, just enough to do something I've done a thousand times different. But because you say so, I'll do so. Do you realize what's at stake for Peter in this moment? What's at stake for you? If Jesus were to show up at your workplace and invite you to do something you've done a thousand times different, it's, it's trust. Simply, it's trust. 
A simple act of obedience. This is not a massive act of obedience. If you go to Matthew chapter 4, same story, different way of writing it. Matthew says that Jesus comes along the lake, says to Peter, leave your nets and follow me. And immediately does. There's none of this dialogue. Massive act of obedience. He says to James and John, leave your father and follow me. And they do. Massive. If you can imagine leaving your business, leaving your work just to go do something totally different, leaving your family to go follow Jesus. Some of you did, did that. This is not a massive act. This is a simple act of obedience. Just something he'd done a thousand times, one more time. Just see if it works, Peter. Let's try it. Different. Could he trust Jesus with one simple decision? Now, some of you are exactly there. This is, you have this internal nudge, this little elbow in the ribs, like nagging voice in your head, nudging, nudging, nudging. And like Peter, you have no idea what hangs in the balance for you today of trusting God with one thing, one decision, like one little decision, one circumstance, one relationship. could be a minor one. could be a really major one for you. It will always involve a certain degree of risk, and it will always involve trust. Trust is the crux here. Peter, just like you, like me, had no idea what hung in the balance of just trusting Jesus with one decision, one thing you've done your whole life. And, and do you know the rest of the story here? This is really cool. You've been around. You heard, you heard Andrew read it. Verse 6, when they had done so, not when they believed so, not when they came to church, sung about it, and then thought so, not when they prayed a little bit about it, and, and, you know, but when they had done so. Because doing in this situation makes the difference. It's about doing. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish, their boats began to sink, signaled to their partners, come, help. <laughs> and they filled their boats, so both boats also began to sink. And then it says, when Simon saw this, listen, he didn't give Jesus a high five. Man, that was really cool. Let's do it again. Uh, He didn't thank him for the great sermon, leave a little money in the plate, and then continue on his own way. He didn't cash in at all, cash in all that. It's a massive catch, and then retire. He didn't capitalize on it and expand the business. Let's, let's Let's have three fishing companies now. Verse 8, he fell on his knees and said, go away. Go away from me, Lord, not master. Jesus had moved from being just a merely respected person to Lord in a moment because of a simple decision. Lord, I'm a sinful man. Go away from me. In that moment, Peter, for the first time in this whole story, recognizes Jesus for who he is. And that first moment of recognition for who he is, Jesus is Lord, I'm a sinful person. And that moment, that's the, that's, that, that makes this the beginning of his relationship with Jesus. The beginning. He knew Jesus. He'd watched Jesus do some stuff. This is the beginning. Lord, I'm a sinful man. By dropping his nets in broad daylight, by doing something he'd done a thousand times different, by taking a practical step of faith, uh, his eyes were open, his heart was open, his ex- he experienced something he'd never imagined. He was able to say, wow, God, You are at work in my life. So here's the application for us. What is it for you that Jesus might be saying, you've been doing it, and you're doing it great. Um, Or maybe you're struggling at it, but you've been doing it a thousand times. It's code, it's finance, it's parenting, it's marriage. Uh, It's a hard conversation with your parents. It's a hard conversation with your spouse. It's how you approach intimacy. It's, there's all kinds of categories here. Lots of people think they have faith 
and this is, I'm putting myself in the boat here, sorry for the pun, because they give mental assent to doctrine. I believe Jesus died, he rose, he sits on the right hand of the Father, but they never actually experience changed life. They come to church, church just feels empty, they have no idea, they read their Bible, they don't know if God's actually, this is just old stuff, I just, I'm telling myself I believe in it, but I'm not sure. (laughs) Might it be because they, you, me, aren't willing to do something different, practically different in your life, in your day-to-day. That's what Jesus is really about, the day-to-day. He shows up in the day-to-day of Peter's life and changes his day-to-day doing. He's a fisherman. Jesus is a carpenter. It's his real-life stuff, his family, his marriage, his friendships, his work, all the relationships, your relationship to money, your relationship to your sexuality, the relationship to the world. He wants to change all that. He's immensely interested in teaching you how to live by faith in the day-to-day. The doctrine's all good, okay? But the day-to-day is where Jesus actually shows up by listening and then responding and acting on what he says. Faith is never more than that. It's never less than that, okay? So that's why he says, do it my way. So he says, I choose you. He says, I do it my way. And then here's the last thing he says, really important. So if you've heard nothing today, listen in, okay? I know half of you are gone now. (laughs) Do not be afraid. He actually says this in verse 10. Like I said, they put their nets into the water, broad daylight. They had an amazing catch. They're stunned. Nothing short of a miracle, right? So they fall on their faces, and they don't know who Jesus is. I mean, he's Lord, but wow. And they don't, even, they, they don't know who they are. Wow, we are, we are sinners. <laughs> and so what does Jesus say to them? Get up. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, get up. Good job. You figured it out. Who I am, who you are. Let's move on. I know a little more of fishing than you think. <laughs> Never says that. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. From now on, I'm going to make you fish for people. Now, that fish for people part is another sermon for another day. You were probably expecting that. Sorry. There are lots of sermons on that verse, okay? Not that they're bad. I just, uh, I think it's Jesus' way of saying, I have a future for you. You could have never imagined before this morning or last night. You were just in the depths of despair. I have a future for you because I chose you, number one, and you trusted me, number two. There's your sermon on that, okay? I'll fish for people. You choose, uh, Jesus chooses you, you trust in him, boom. That's it in a nutshell. Okay, so move on to the second part, do not be afraid. Notice, prior to that, Jesus says the thing that he says, more than anything here, it says in the entire Bible, more than anything in the whole Bible, this do not be afraid. It's the most often repeated command in Scripture. I've heard Richard Rohr say this. uh, There's like 365 occurrences of that phrase in the Old and New Testament. It's like one for every day of the year. And it's obviously not by accident he says this. It's a specific thing that God addressed here and elsewhere because God knew that our greatest weakness would be fear. Our greatest point of failure would be fear. Uh, the greatest point of turning from opportunity we have is fear. So every time we approach the precipice of faith, trusting in God, and Peter had just done that. He approached the precipice of faith. I'm going to drop my nets even though it's a bad idea, I think. God knew the thing that would keep him from continuing on that path, continuing down that road, doing it again and again and again and again. Remember the end of the story. Peter is still faced with doubt and fear. He's designed us for courage, God has, and yet we're faced by overwhelming fear. So Jesus is always saying, like when he rises from the dead, shows up in the upper room, what does he say? Do not be afraid. (laughs) Do not be afraid. It's a command 
It's a command. As much to the enemy, by the way, as it is to the disciples. And here's what I mean by that. If I ask you what the opposite of love is, what are you going to say? I mean, a lot of us have been conditioned to say, well, hate, anger, right? Like, um, and that's not entirely true. Psychologists have long argued this, that the opposite, the base emotion behind anger and hatred is actually fear. It's one of the most basic emotions, that fight or flight thing. Uh, We are deeply scared people. (laughs) That's the opposite of love is fear. And so God's not concerned so much with anger. I mean, this is not permission to get angry at people on the road when you're driving or anger your spouse, as he is with fear. He's deeply concerned with fear. Do not be afraid, which is why Jesus says that. He's casting out fear, if you think of it in those terms. He's just cast out demons, just another occurrence of what Jesus always does. Fear is the enemy of God. Fear has no place in God's kingdom. Uh, so Jesus does this. I mean, this is what it says elsewhere in the Bible. Perfect love. Jesus is, the, is perfect love. He's love in the flesh. Perfect love casts out what? Fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Jesus is just doing his job. He's perfect love. He's casting out fear. He's speaking the one thing he knows to speak more than anything, the truth. Do not be afraid. Setting these guys up, Peter, James, and John, and us for a life of faith, of courage, of boldness. And by, so by way of closing, here's the question I want to ask us with respect to fear. I actually want to ask us a question and give us a challenge. So the question, what are you afraid of right now? As you're sitting here, what are you afraid of? It could be failure. I know a lot of you, you're doing really amazing things in finance, in business, in the marketplace, as parents of amazing kids, in, in kind of social enterprises, you are amazing people. And you're also afraid of failure. And so, I mean, Peter was afraid of failure. Why are you afraid of failure? Right? Um, is it because you're, you're living your life based on your own performance? Like, man, if I don't succeed, you're measuring your efforts based on your level of success, your worth on that. Are you afraid of failure? Why are you afraid of failure? Is it, are you afraid of losing someone dear to you, a friend, a spouse, a child? I mean, you take five minutes and ponder losing one of your own kids. That'll strike you with fear. Um, is, it, is it that you're not as loved as you think you should be? You're not loved? If people knew, like, just how you are deep down, like I said earlier, if people knew what you thought about, your addictions, your cynicism, your apathy, they would just... They'd never want to sit by you in the church. <laughs> You'd be sitting alone right up here. What is it? Is it rejection that you're afraid of? What are you afraid of? I know I'm asking some deep questions, and I'm naming some deep things just as we close, and which is a dangerous way to end a sermon. But fear is deep within all of us. And God wants us to see us free from fear. Do not be afraid. Which brings me to the challenge. Here's the challenge. I challenge us not to not fear, <laughs> as in to say, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Like, that's a psychological mantra that, for dealing with fear that is both not Christian and doesn't work. It's like saying, don't think of an elephant. You know? Of course you're afraid. Fear's deep. It's deeper than anything. And just by not, by, like, trying to talk yourself out of it isn't going to work. And so I invite us to first identify the fear. What are you afraid of? And here's the challenge. To get underneath the fear. 
And here's what getting underneath fear looks like. Combat fear with what? Perfect love casts out fear. Combat fear with love. And so I want to invite us to think on the fear that we carry. All of us are carrying something. And then invite the God who is love, who speaks and listens to the cries of our hearts, to do battle with fear. You want to, you know, that song we sing sometimes, This is How I Fight My Battles? Jesus wants to battle the fear in your life if you'll let him. If you'll just let him love you, fight for you, defeat the enemy. Um, not with conventional weapons, like, but just with love. I mean, to allow him to minister to you in the place that you're in. Remember, Jesus likes to show up in the day-to-day. And if you're experiencing any degree of fear around anything, I think he wants to show up right now. And he wants to, he wants to combat that, and he wants to free you for tomorrow. So you can enter into that workplace with faith and then be able to do something his way and, and hear that he chooses you. You see how this is all connected? So will you allow God to love you or will we allow God to love us together as we respond with worship? We'll invite our worship team up. As they um, prepare to lead us, let me just take a moment to pray. And will you just sit, maybe even hands up, and just allow the Lord to reveal to you right now what it is you're carrying? Lord, we thank you uh, as we are seated here and soon to stand in your presence. Um, as our children are just outside in fellowship, as the fears that we've all carried as just broken people um, in this broken world are very real as well, that those fears <laughs> have no power in your presence, that your presence is greater than any of them. All of them combined, even, God, have no power compared to you. You singularly are more beautiful, more powerful, more loving. And so we ask you, Lord, we thank you, actually, that if we just allow ourselves to be loved by you, um, you will defeat the enemies of our lives, the things that are holding us captive. So God, whether they're major or minor, just something that happened today or this week, or they're something that we're dealing with just constantly, something out of our control or something we think we can control, God, we release now to you control, and we ask you, the one who is perfect love, to cast out fear. And we pray in Christ's name and worship in his name.